Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. You booked a very good day to come and join us at Grace if you've been here for a number of weeks. This today, the passage we're going to look at today, is the climax of the whole book itself from an application standpoint. Every, all four chapters that we've looked at have been leading up to this one sentence, and after this one sentence, it will be a matter of kind of a downward run on how to apply it. That one sentence, Galatians 5, verse 1, it says this, for it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Look at the title of our series is called Freedom. How about that? And here's why. There's only four words in that sentence. The noun, freedom, there's Christ, there's you, and set free, the verb. There's, okay, so there's only four words in this sentence. This is what everything's been building up to. This is how everything else is going to apply. And even the word order, Greek kind of makes a big deal out of word order when they want to emphasize something. They put a word at the front or the back. Guess what the front word is? Freedom. Guess what the back word is? Set free. Even the tense of the verb tells us something because it doesn't say how we were set free, right, or when we were set free. It's in the aorist tense, and it says that you are set free. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Okay? And the gospel says this. Okay, just to, in a sentence to summarize the gospel, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It, there is nothing found in you that can be condemned if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about your past. It is about the past that Christ did. It is not about what you did or have done. It is what Christ did and has done. It is not about your performance. It is about what Christ performed for you. And we see what what happens is that we have a new identity now. We are sons of Abraham, heirs to this righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's, That's our new identity. And that is, the, that is the focal point of the thing that we identify ourselves with. That's what an identity is. And so there's not Jew or Greek, okay? So there's not, there's not nationalities. You're not an Irish Christian. You're a Christian with some Irish issues, okay? <laughs> right? There's no drunks and sobers. There's no rich and poor. There's no men or women, right? I mean, God looks at us and he says, heir, heir to the promise. And the promise is righteousness. There's no condemnation for that person. Nothing. And so he says, look at the passage, the sentence again. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. So if this is the the point of the book itself and how we're going to apply from now on, we have to understand what this word freedom means. Let's spend some time today because people fall off freedom in two different directions. It's classic. Since the time these words were written, since Jesus spoke about what would happen if you received, you know, your righteousness through grace because of faith in that righteousness and in the works that Jesus has done for you, people have been falling off two different ways. Um, Kierkegaard made a, made a career out of just explaining these two different ways that people fall off, okay, because people don't apply it deeply in their lives. The easiest way people do is they go over here and they say, you know what, freedom I can, I can do anything. If there is absolutely no condemnation in me, I can do anything I want. And so I will serve my passions, and, and we'll just call that, for sake of clarity, hedonism. And Paul says there's slavery there. There's no freedom. There's slavery. 
And then the other alternative people go to, this other way to fall off this, this gospel is to say, you know what? Um, I get that there's no freedom there, and that's been wearing me out. I'm going to be a good moral person, and, and I'm going to have good ambitions. I'm going to be a good parent or, you know, a good employee. I'm going to be a, a good human being, and God wants me to do that, and so I'll do good things so that he, he helps me become who I want to become. See, so I have ambitions, and they're good ambitions, and so now God and I will work together, and when I'm good, he'll bless me, and when I'm bad, he probably won't. And there's slavery there because, because we're, we're enslaved to our conduct, and it's still all about us. See, it's still, we're, not, we're still enslaved to an ego of, of being a good old boy. We're enslaved to our personal ambitions. And Paul says, in this passage that we're going to look at today, one through six mostly, he's going to say, look, there is a freedom that transcends, you know, your license to, to, to do whatever you want because you think that's going to get you somewhere, or even, or even your um, honorable ambitions in life to be a good human being. There's no power in that. There's only slavery. I'm going to show you about uh, uh, what happens when you trust in the, in the gospel deeply, when it becomes the heart of your heart's issue then you'll be this overflowing in love, which will be so much... Here's the thing. Love will give you the power to do so much more than the law ever could. Because duty can only go so far, and love will have you do insane things. And so we're going to look at that today, this third option. But let's look at the first two because they're so prevalent, and it's in this passage. You know, the first one is hedonism and it's slavery. It's hedonism is, there's slavery and hedonism, and there's slavery and moralism. Every time you read the Gospels, every time the Gospel is presented clearly, every single time the Gospel is presented clearly, what immediately happens is, the first reaction is, so I can do whatever I want. There's kind of two applications. That One is, I, so there's nothing I can do so that God would love me less Right, yes, he's like a he's like an honest to goodness good parent. You can't un you can't lose his love for you, then I can do whatever I want. Okay? And then the second thing is, well, how does that bring you power? How does that give how 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 could that motivate anyone to be moral? If he can't if he can't stop loving you, then why would you ever want to be moral? And that's what he's gonna talk about today. He's gonna to look at verse five, chapter five, verses one and two. Look carefully at who, is, who the audience is, because that'll be the clue to one of our answers here. Verse 1 says, it is, for, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. To understand that hedonism, okay, is servitude, you have to first look at this passage and say, who is he talking to? Is he talking to Jews or is he talking to pagans? He's talking to pagans because they haven't been circumcised yet. That's, see verse 2, it says, I, Paul, tell you that if, you, if, if you, you yourselves get circumcised, so he's not talking about Jews, they've already been circumcised. He's talking to pagans. And what are pagans you know, famous for, especially back then? Their debauchery. They were famous for their debauchery. They could, they, there were no rules, especially in their sex lives or, or their drunkenness and those sorts of things. So if he's talking to pagans, watch what he says in verse 1. Look at the power of the word again. 
It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So you see what he's saying? You remember that old life you came out of where you did whatever you wanted? If you go over to this other model, okay, we'll use hedonism over here and moralism over here. If you go to moralism, you're just going back again to slavery. And the pagans knew hedonism is slavery. It is cruel. You, you submit to your passions and you do whatever they tell you to do. It, it is born out of selfishness and you, you just surrender. And then because, you know, because the body just wears down, it destroys you and makes you less than human. It, it just, it's cruel because it enslaves you. Um, look, you could go down the street, the University of Texas, and on any given Friday or I guess Saturday nights are the big parties. They'll have these huge parties, and the fraternities will. The fraternities will have these huge parties, and they'll, and they'll be extravagant. They'll, they'll, I was involved in one. We wrote checks for ten dollars or $20,000 in just alcohol alone for one night. Okay? There will be 200, let's just pretend for, for this illustration, there will be 200 freshmen there at this party. And, and they'll dress the place up like whatever it's supposed to be. I mean, they'll, they'll put rivers and lakes in the front yards, and they'll have this, this big party, 200 freshmen, the new, the new recruits, because it's their first year in college. And I can do anything I want to do, and they do. They just, they just destroy themselves. There'll be 12 seniors there. And do you know why there's 12 seniors? Because they're tired. They haven't failed out. They have worn out. They've been enslaved by paganism, by hedonism, by serving their ego and doing whatever their body wanted them to do, and they're tired of it. And Paul's saying, look, look, you seniors, you know, you can do whatever you want. You don't want that anymore, right? That's slavery. If you go over here to moralism... You're just going back to another kind of slavery. See how by using just this single word again, it's saying you're going into another version of the same thing. And, and that's what happens in people's lives. This is Kierkegaard all over again. We start over here with I just want to, I just want to be full of food and full of, of good feelings and whatever feels good is great. I'll take a nap. I want to be left alone. I want to make sure I'm right all the time. And that wears you out. And so you go, I'm going to be a moral person. And so seniors sometimes, you know, I'll be a good person and I'll settle down and with this one person and we'll have a good family together. And they, so they go to moralism and Paul says, that's slavery too. Because you're now, you're, now, now you're just being a servant to your own ambitions. And your ambitions are to be a good mother and a good family man and, and a good partner at, you know, where you work. Those are good and then you let them define you. I, this is, becomes your reputation. I'm the hard worker. I'm the good guy. Instead of like an heir of Abraham, this is what defines you. And since it can be taken away, you kind of freak out when things get a little shaky. And so you go to church. You bring God in on it because God wants you to be a good moral person. He wants you to be a good mom. He wants you to be a good family man. And so now you're going to work together. This is the moralism that Paul's saying that people go to. I'm going to pray, and God will, God will help me, and I'll get what I want. And he will bless me. If I do good, he'll bless me. And if I don't do so good, I'll be really nervous about that because then, you know, the lightning bolts happen in my life. And I can connect those dots because he wants me to be moral. And so we'll do this together, right? 
Know this. Know this. God is not out to make us moral people. That is not his ambition. He doesn't want us to be good moral people. He wants us to be Christ, a different kind of person. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, he says God, God became man. Okay, look at the extent, right? God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce a whole new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better and higher and higher. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. It's a whole different kind of creature. And, and so people that want to, want to live the moral life are enslaved to that morality because it's still all about them looking good, but it's just calmer. And, and Paul says, really, if you want to go the moral life route, you better be careful. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, you want to go this moral slavery route, then Christ will be of no value to you anymore, okay? And again, I declare that every man who lets himself to be circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Morality is servitude for a, a couple of ways. One is, is it puts you, you, your blessings from God are up to your moral behavior, not based on what God has done, but on what you're doing. And, and if, you know, that's a volatile way to live, isn't it? And, it's, and especially when you wonder who's keeping score. If you're keeping score and you're comparing yourself to the, the really bad people down the street, which is what we usually do, we think, hey, I'm doing okay. That's not how God keeps score. Here's, here's a, a more demented, um, the lo, the demented logic of moralism is it obligates God. If you're a disciplined person and rather arrogant, you'll think you're doing a good job and you're going to be tapping your toe. I've done my part. See, you're in a business relationship with God, and you're saying, look, I've done my part. Now let's go. And so, again, what's, you, you, do, you do things to get what you want. It's still about you. And so you've, you've lived a good moral life, and so now my children have to turn out right, God. I did all the things that were available at church and everywhere else, so let's go. Even, even things like apologies. You go and you, you say, you know, I need to confess this because I need you to forgive me. I mean, it's just, it's just killing my conscience. This is weighing heavy on me. Oh, okay. So I should, you know, right? So I should forgive you so your conscience would be released. See how even our apologies can be all about us. I just can't sleep with myself anymore. I just can't live with this. So I need to go apologize so I can be at peace again. See how we're enslaved to our own ego? See how it's still about us? Moralism is slavery because we can't get away from our own ambitions of, of peace and tranquility. We're, we've had enough of, of hedonism, and now we want moralism, and we just want peace, and we want God to get on this. And so when we're relatively successful, we're expecting God to respond, and then when we're not so successful in our moral choices, we're thinking we're going to get hit by lightning bolts. Again, we're living with fear. And, and, we're, and whatever we do in, in the context of morality, it's so that we get. A very famous preacher in, in uh, Great Britain is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You might have heard of him. 
But he, he says this kind of in the, in, the, in the guise of morality. He says this, that unless you completely understand that you are forgiven by grace alone, unless you live a life that's completely surrendered to the fact that you've inherited righteousness and not earned it, you've never done a thing for God. Let me say it again. Unless you, he said, unless, I'll just read it, unless, unless you've completely surrendered to the fact that you're saved alone by God's grace and already approved, you've never done a single thing for God. And so, he, why is that? He tells his story. He says, he tells his story about a little gardener, medieval times, right? A little gardener, and he's out in his garden, and he's able to produce this glorious carrot, right? He pulls this thing out of the ground, and it's, and it's huge, and it's brilliant, and it's coloring, and it smells. You can just smell carrot. And he looks at this carrot, and he says, I will go and give this to my king because I love my king and I want him to have this carrot. And so he gets an audience with the king and he says, oh, great king, I, I want you to have this carrot. I will have, ne- in my life as a gardener, I will never produce a carrot like this ever again and never since then. So would you please have this carrot? And the king, yeah, okay, I'll take your carrot. And the gardener's leaving, and he's about out the back door there, and the king says, wait, that was a beautiful thing to do. I want to give you an acre, another acre, right next to your acre, so you can expand. I want to double the amount of gardening that you do because you are a great gardener. A nobleman is overhearing this. He's behind one of the pillars, and he overhears what's going on, and he's thinking, the king will give, you know, double the garden size for a carrot. I'm going to give him a horse. And so he goes to his stables and he picks out the very best horse. And, you know, a day later comes and says, oh, great king. Oh, mighty sovereign. This is the best horse I have ever been able to read and raise. And I want you to have this horse because you are my king. The king knows what's up. He goes, thanks for the horse. (laughs) So he grabs the horse. He's just walking out with it. And the nobleman is hanging his head. And the the king is almost out the door. He says, I know you get. I know what you're doing. You gave me this horse, but you didn't give it to me. You gave it to you. You gave it so that you would get. You see, that's, that's, that's a morality value, and that's a slavery. I'm going to do things so I'll get to heaven. Well, if you're doing it to get to heaven, you're just doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for God. If you're, if, you're, if you're telling the truth because it pays off, then when it doesn't pay off, you won't do it. Or the payoff doesn't happen soon enough, you'll just quit with that value because you were doing it not for God, but because you were doing it for you. Because it's always about you. You're still in slavery. And so you're not loving God for himself. See, the gardener, he loved God, he loved the king for, for himself. Listen, God loves you for yourself. He doesn't love you because of what you've done or your moral deeds. He doesn't need your carrots. Do you think God cares about your, your good actions? You think you win his favor with that trivia? So, not only 
are, is, is this morality, this moralism, slavery, it's slavery to your ego, but you, you can't love God for himself, and you can't appreciate how God loves you for yourself. And here's the thing. You can't love anyone else for themselves because that's the economy of your soul. That's the fuel your soul runs on. And so when Paul says it is for freedom that Christ set you free, it is for freedom. You don't have to be a slave to what your ego and your passions over here, right? I mean, one says, one says freedom, freedom, why should I do good? He says, yeah, why should I do good? You know, um, the sophomore who tells everybody at the football game, there's a big party at my house, my parents are leaving town. I can do anything. I, I know you probably did that, but okay, you're not a sophomore anymore, but it was your house they trashed, okay? That's a stupid thing to do. You could, sure, you can do that. Your parents come home and they love you still, but it was your house they trashed. It's your life and soul that's getting trashed over here. And, and moralism, right? You're, you're just a slave to these ways of defining yourself with good reputation and you hope it's never taken from you, that you're a good provider, you're a good mother, you're a good person. And it's all so that's back to you. So is there a third option? Most people never experience the third option. Kierkegaard says it's so small that they actually experience a relationship with God. But that's what Paul's presenting to us today. That's the option he's laying before us. There is another way to live. And so he lays it out before us right here in verse 5 and 6. And we'll, we'll look at it first and then we'll cut it apart a little bit. But look what he says. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness in which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither their circumcision or uncircumcision, that has any value. Okay? The only thing that counts, look at that, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Okay? So verse 5 is the power that brings us verse 6. Verse 5 is the way we can do the love, the faith expressing itself in love. And verse 5, we have to understand what hope means or we'll miss this. English word for hope is just a terrible word that you can't find one that's appropriate. In the Bible, well, okay, the English word for hope is um, I wish. It's this thing I, I wish. I wish I win the lottery. I hope I get picked on the basketball team. I hope, right? It's this thing that could happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Who knows? But I'm going to hope. In the Bible, whenever you see the word hope, it means it is a certainty that you're counting on, okay? Hope means it is a certainty, an absolute certainty. It's a done deal that you're counting on. So um, uh, here's a great example that we can use the English word, but it applies to the Bible word. Uh, my daughter, my youngest, uh, saved up. <laughs> the, the kids have to buy their cars, their own cars, and so she watched the other ones not save so much, and so she saved since she was probably five. And so she wanted a convertible, and so we, you know, we found this convertible, and it was a great price, and it was for sale, and it was in December, but her birthday for her 16-year-old, her 16th birthday wasn't until April, but we said, oh, we'll just buy it. We have to buy it now. It's a used car. We have to buy it now. And so this little red Toyota convertible that we purchased in December sat right outside our house on the curb in front of her window, Okay. And she, that's what she was hoping for when she turned 16. 
It was a done deal. It was already purchased. If the car was missing, let's just pretend parents took it for a drive on a beautiful spring day. Just saying. <laughs> I want to keep everything, all the parts oiled and everything. If the car was gone, she still had hope in that being her, her, her birthday experience, right? Because it's already purchased. It's right there. That's, now, with that word hope in mind, let's look at verse 5 and 6 again because 5 gives us the power to do 6. For this, through the Spirit, what do we do? We eagerly wait, okay? We eagerly await the righteousness in which we hope for, okay? The thing out on the curb that we stare out right outside of our window is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do we hope for that? Yeah, but how do we hope? It's a done deal. It's, it's a sure thing as my daughter's convertible was going to be there on her 16th birthday, see? So the, we, we know the righteousness is already there. Because that righteousness, we know that's true, what can we do with this? It says, first of all, circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing, right? Moralism, that's stupid and it's slavery. And hedonism, that's stupid and it's slavery. This one feeds our ego and flesh. This one feeds our ego and our selfish ambitions. That stuff is worthless. What, what does matter? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And now, see what happens when we, when we, when we focus, when we're, it's no longer our ego, it is this hope in the righteousness, and the hope is a certain thing. Then what happens is it overflows in our life, and our faith expresses itself in love. Now we do stuff for the love of God, for what he's already done. Now guess what we are? Now we're gardeners. And when, some, when something happens, we, like when we want to be generous, we would be way more generous than the moral person would be. We would, and we would give him the carrot, not because God needs our carrots. He doesn't need our... It's because we don't know what to do with this overflowing of love and joy for other people. When the self is out of the way, we can love other people for who they are, not what somehow they can help us somehow or so that it makes us feel good. We love because love is overflowing in us because our hope, our certainty is focused on this righteousness that we've inherited. So there's, look how it's, look how kind of it's cyclical, okay? Our hope in this righteousness that's sure causes us to have faith working itself out in love. And the more we work our, our love out, we can't, we, the more carrots we give away, the more, the more actions that we do as a result of our faith in that righteousness that we have, we find ourselves focusing more on that. And so we have this spiral that's going on, and it's self-perpetuating, and there's something that's missing, and we don't care. It's us. There's a self-forgetfulness that's so powerful in verse 5 and 6 as it keeps going. Let's work it backwards. Watch. I'm having a difficult time expressing faith, showing itself in love. I'm, I'm missing kind of the love thing. I'm not being a very good lover of God or lover of people. What should I do? Here's what the moralist does. What does the moralist do? Reads a couple books on love, right? I mean, how do I love more? How, how can I, you know, 42 ways of helping people be more loving and that sort of thing, right? I could go to a seminar and fill a notebook up. Okay, what does this passage say? If the love is running dry... If we're growing tired of giving or, or celebrating, if we're coveting our little carrots, then we need to go back to verse, we need to go back to verse five and say, wait a minute, I've taken my eyes off 
the hope of righteousness. See? I need to go back and, and spend some time about on, on what God has done for me, that, he, that he, 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 he loved me, it said earlier, right? He loved me and gave himself up for me. So how, how does this happen? One writer put it like this. He said, it's how we prayed when we started. He said, inside the heart, there's this other heart. It's the heart of hearts. And, and in this heart of hearts, Everyone, these are my words, not his, uh, everyone has a precious. And I think that's the power of, you know, of the, of the, the rings books, the four books on the, the rings. It, it's, it's that ring. It's that, the ring that controls them all, right? And everybody has this precious. And they worship that precious, and they serve that precious, and they obey that precious. The default precious that you get, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, is your ego. It's you. It's this giant monolith that says, I, me, myself. And you worship and serve, and, 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 and as you do that, in, in its various expressions, either over here with gluttony and laziness, right, and, and, and some sort of sensual satisfaction, or even over here, I want a respectable reputation, and I want to be thought well of. All those things are all about you. And you become, you be, right, you become golem-like. And this passage is saying, you know what? Everyone has in their heart of hearts this precious, it can never, there's never a vacuum there. You have to replace it with this righteousness of Jesus Christ, being enamored by the beauty of the gospel that there is no condemnation for you. And, and what you get and what you inherit and, and what Christ calls you, the names he calls you, sons of Abraham. And he calls you a son, male or female, because you inherit everything. Christ has set you free. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. You know what he sets you free from? He sets you free from you. He sets you free from you. And so this circumcision and non-circumcision, these games that we play because we think there's two answers, our whole lives we think there's two answers, there's a third answer. It's to be forged, changed from the inside out. Um, uh, when you bend metal, if you, if, you, if you had a piece of metal, like rebar, something, a solid piece of steel, and it were bent and you wanted it straight, here's what, here's what I would do, here's what most people do. They stick one end in a vise, and they get a hammer, and they beat it back straight, and that didn't work, so they get a bigger hammer, and then they borrow the neighbor's sledge, and they just beat this thing back, and then they put the bend in the vise, and they just cramp it down. You get your neighbor to help, and the two of us, we cramp this thing down, and then voila, <laughs> what was bent is now straight. It just appears to be straight. Because by bending it back using force, right, there's all sorts of, of tears in the fibers of that metal, and it's far weaker now than it ever was before. It is the facade of straightness. And that's what happens when people, because of their backgrounds or because of their desires, or maybe they have some injury in their back or, or, some, or even habits or hang-ups, or, right, in our Celebrate Recovery movements, it's so easy for people to jump in there and say, I need a group of people to hold me accountable to hold on this other part of this pipe so we can bend it together. And so I can go another weekday year, right, appearing to be straight. Well, good for you and your moralism, but God is not out to make anyone moral. He's out to make us completely new. 
He wants to make us not a horse that jumps. He wants to make us Pegasus that flies. And so the way you make a, a, a bent metal rod straight is you put it in, in, in hot coals, and then it glows, right? You've seen it. It just glows and makes it soft. And then it's straightened and nurtured, and it's as stronger, stronger, because now it's forged. It's forged steel. That's the power of the gospel. That is when we, when we focus on our hope, our certainty, our certain hope in the righteousness that we have because God loves us for ourselves, for ourselves. And then we love God for himself unconditionally. We get to love God unconditionally. No baggage, no games of moralism. Though he slay me, I will still worship him. He is, my love for him becomes unconditional because, I'm, because my ego has been crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. And so today, here's, here's what I'd like for us to consider doing today. Choosing what is, what is your precious? What is inside your heart, inside your heart's heart, the heart of your heart? What's in there? Are you tired of this yet? I can do anything I want. You're enslaved to that. Aren't you worn out enough? Are you still a freshman frat boy? You know, or, or how about moralism over here? Do you still care so much about what other people think of you? Your parents, your friends, some significant stranger? Are, see, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm appealing to you maybe like Paul would be. Are you tired of slavery? Have the calluses on your neck from carrying the yoke of these lifestyles, have they hurt you enough? Could you consider surrendering your ego and letting the certainty of the righteousness that you have in Jesus Christ, if you surrender right your, your hopes into that, then what would happen? You'd have faith showing itself in love. And I, friends... You will do things that the law could never get you to do. That's, you will walk the extra mile. You will give sacrificially, and it won't be a sacrifice. You will do what God causes you to do, and you will, it won't be a burden to you. So are you tired yet? Let's, let's pray to this end because we could, you could be free. <laughs> it's for freedom that Christ set you free. And all you have to do is let go. All you have to do is let go of your stupid, selfish ambitions and desires to be left alone and be comfortable. Just let go of that. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I would ask that you would uh, convict our spirits about whether we would, you know, we're type, this one type person that would, that would take advantage of your love and, and try to burn our own house down around us for the sake of freedom, that we would see that that is killing us. And it's so selfish. And, 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 and I'd say very many of us in this room today are just living a moral life and want you to be included in that moral life. And we're we're going to do our part, you do yours, and that's slavery too. We are disappointed when you don't bless us, and that's a sin, and we call that a sin today. 
that we've been, we've been putting you on a rope. And we don't, we're sorry, Lord, because that, that's still about us too. The things that we allow to define us that can be taken away from us scare us. And so, Lord, I ask in a confessional way that you would give us an understanding and this insight of this verse 5, of this hope, this certainty that we eagerly await the righteousness that's already right outside that belongs to us already, the title's in our name already, and that we would meditate on that and that would become our precious so that the only thing that would count in our lives is faith is expressing itself in love. Lord, let us be so self-forgetful that if, if something happened in our lives that we would, we would have a carrot, we would run to you like you need our carrots, and we would run to you and give it to you for no other reason as an expression of who you've allowed us to become. You have loved us for who we are and nothing else. Lord, let us love you for who you are. We pray this in great hope. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.